0: diamond mines do you know what they did to the native workers who stole diamonds <coughs> don't worry they didn't kill them no if they caught them they had to make sure they could go on working but they also had to make sure they could never run away the operation was called hobbling Annie, whatever you think about doing please don't do it any God. shh darling. trust me For god's sake it's the, best. Shh. it's the film flamers
1: hey guys i'm chris hey everybody i'm robert and we're the film flamers and it's time for another Doody episode that's right and it's for celebrating the new year i guess we're just going to bring you some misery
2: that's <laughs> we're doing it As only the film flamers can. You dirty birds. You dirty birds. Filling 2024 with misery right away. Mm. Why wait for the year to do it for us? We'll bring it to you.
1: Just a quick note. If you have not seen this movie, there's lots of spoilers on this review. So please, before you listen to this deep dive, go watch the movie. You won't regret it. Do yourself a favor. If you haven't watched it, watch it. Yeah. Misery is a 1990 American psychological thriller film directed by Rob Reiner based on Stephen King's 1987 novel of the same name, starring James Caan, Kathy Bates, Lauren Bacall, randomly, Richard Farnsworth, and Francis Sternhagen. The plot centers around an author who is held captive by an obsessive fan who forces him to rewrite the finale to his novel series.
2: Misery was the second Stephen King film adaptation directed by Rob Reiner after 1986's Stand By Me. Misery would go on to be a success and would launch the career of Kathy Bates though there have been lots of nominations some of which we've covered right here on the Film Flamers Misery, so far is the only King film to receive an Oscar
1: Okay listeners we're your number one fan this is Misery
0: You almost died You have a compound fracture of the tibia in both legs and the fibula in the right leg is fractured too And as soon as the roads open, I'll take you to a hospital. In the meantime, you've got a lot of recovering to do. There is nothing to worry about. You're gonna be just fine. I'm your number one fan. My name is Annie Wilkes. I think one of my clients, Paul Sheldon, might be in some kind of trouble.
2: You mean Paul Sheldon the writer? Everybody sure likes those misery books.
0: They had it at the store, Paul. They
2: said he checked out last Tuesday.
0: Isn't that a little strange? I guess it was kind of a miracle you finding me. In a way, I was following you. You were following me? Oh, Paul, I've read everything of yours, but the Misery novels. You must be a good man, or you could never have created such a wondrous, loving creature as Misery Chastain. You're very kind. The presumption must now be that Paul Sheldon is dead. You dirty bird. How could you? Misery Chastain cannot be dead. Misery spirit is still alive. I want her! And you murdered her! You don't think he's dead, do you? And don't even think about anybody coming for you, because I never called them. Nobody knows you're here. And you better hope nothing happens to me. Because if I die, you die. I know you've been out. Is this what you're looking for? Eventually, you'll come to accept the idea of being here, Annie. Whatever you think I'm about doing, please don't do it, Annie. For God's shh, darling. Trust me. God's sake. It's for the best. God, I love you.
2: Famed novelist Paul Sheldon, played by James Caan, is the author of a successful series of Victorian romance novels featuring a character named Misery Chastain. Per tradition, he's staying at the Silver Creek Hotel in Colorado to finish his latest novel. Wanting to focus on more serious stories, he writes a manuscript that he hopes will launch his post-misery career. After smoking his congratulatory cigarette and a glass of Don Perignon, Think Champagne. He sets out on his journey home from Silver Creek to his home in New York City. Unfortunately, Paul is caught in a cock a blizzard and crashes his car, rendering him unconscious. A nurse named Annie Wilkes, played by Kathy Bates, finds him and brings him to her remote home. Paul regains consciousness and finds himself bedridden with broken legs and a dislocated shoulder. Annie claims to be his number one fan, and constantly praises him in his novels. She offers to care for him until the telephone lines are reconnected and the local roads reopen following the cocky duty blizzard. Out of gratitude, Paul lets her read his new manuscript. She angrily criticizes the profanity in his new work, which disturbs him greatly, but she quickly apologizes. When she reads the latest Misery novel and discovers that the character of Misery dies at the end, she flies into an unhinged rage, revealing to Paul that nobody knows where he is and she never informed any kind of authority or his agent of his whereabouts, effectively holding him prisoner in her secluded home. Feeling as though she's received a revelation from God to set things right, Annie forces Paul to burn the only copy of his new manuscript. She also provides a second-hand typewriter and orders him to begin writing a new novel titled Misery's Return, in which he brings the character back to life. Now in a wheelchair, Paul finds a bobby pin on the floor and uses it to unlock his door and leave his room. He begins stockpiling his painkillers and invites Annie to have dinner to celebrate the return of Misery. During the romantic dinner, Paul attempts to drug Annie by spiking her wine with the crushed painkillers, but his plan is foiled after she accidentally knocks over her cock a glass. Paul breaks out of his room again and finds a scrapbook of newspaper clippings about Annie's past and learns that Annie was tried for deaths of several infants in the hospital where she worked, but the trial collapsed due to a lack of evidence. Annie had quoted lines from his misery novels during her trial. Annie discovers that Paul has been sneaking out of his room and, in an operation called Hobbling Paul, (laughs) she breaks his ankles with a sledgehammer to prevent him from escaping again. Meanwhile, the local sheriff, Buster, played by Richard Farnsworth, is investigating Paul's disappearance. Clues lead him to pay Annie a visit, but she murders him with a shotgun to the back when he finds Paul drugged in the basement. She then attempts to kill Paul in a murder-suicide. But Paul, concealing a can of lighter fluid in his pocket, convinces her to let him live long enough to finish the novel in order to give misery back to the world. She solemnly agrees. When the manuscript is done, Paul asks for a cigarette and Dom Perignon. Thanks, champagne. And Annie complies. However, to her horror, Paul uses the lighter to set the new manuscript on fire, telling her, I learned it from you. Paul then strikes Annie with the typewriter after she tries futilely to save the manuscript, and they engage in a violent struggle, with Paul suffering a gunshot wound to the shoulder from her revolver. He trips her, causing her to strike her head on the typewriter, then crawls out of the room, only for Annie to recover and attack again. Paul grabs a metal doorstop and bashes Annie square in the face, finally killing her. Eighteen months later, Paul is now walking with a cane, meets his agent, Marsha, played by Lauren Bacall, in a restaurant in New York City. The two discuss his first post-misery novel, and Marsha tells him about the positive early buzz. Paul replies that he wrote the novel for himself as a way to help deal with the horrors of his captivity. Marsha asks if he would consider a non-fiction book about his captivity, but Paul, who suffers from psychological trauma from the experience, declines. Paul then sees a waitress approaching him, whom he hallucinates as Annie. The waitress tells Paul that she is his number one fan, causing Paul to meekly reply, That's very sweet of you. The cock <laughs> a end. That dirty bird waitress. <laughs> you know what that synopsis needs? A little spam? More Francis Sternhagen. <laughs> <laughs> A little, <laughs> I mix a little span. I makes a little span. Might be some zing. <laughs> I kind of want to try that now, though, too.
1: Misery was released on November 30th, 1990. The film brought in a little more than $10 million opening weekend, securing the number two spot at the box office behind Home Alone. Other films in the top 10 that weekend included Dances with Wolves, Predator 2, Child's Play 2, and Ghost in the 21st week of release. Ghost. Wow, how many of those have we actually covered? <coughs> um, Ghost, Ghost, Predator 2, yep. Not Home Alone, Not Dances with Wolves. I might
2: eventually cover Child's Play 2. I would like to. I love Child's Play 2. I think it's great. Misery would remain in the top ten for six weeks and would ultimately gross more than sixty-one million dollars against a reported budget of eighteen to twenty million. So not a huge hit, but a hit. Yeah, I mean, it was money. moderate successful, and like if you look at the progression of that movie week by week, like it took about seven weeks, six weeks or so, for it to like hit its highest amount. So word of mouth was going right nice. yeah. yeah
1: misery holds a 91 percent on rotten tomatoes and is certified fresh the audience score also sits at a 90 percent, and the site's consensus reads elevated by standout performances by james khan and kathy bates this taut and frightening film is one of the best stephen king adaptions to date audiences here, here. pulled by a cinema score give the film an average grade of an a minus it's
2: good people seem to like it yeah the cinema scores are hard to get up into the a range yeah for some reason Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times gave the film a rating of three stars out of four, stating that it's a good story and it grabs us. Variety calls it a very obvious and very commercial gothic thriller, a functional adaptation of the Stephen King bestseller. Derek Malcolm of The Guardian gave it a positive review, writing that... It plays enough tricks on us so we don't ever treat anything quite seriously, and Goldman's script has enough good lines and situations to keep one interested in exactly what is coming next, and praise the cast, especially Bates, writing that her demented devotee in Misery is inspired casting. Vincent Canby of the New York Times praised Kathy Bates' performance, calling it a genuinely funny performance as the Mad Annie and gaudily written in Mr. Goldman's screenplay as it is in Mr. King's novel. Nice. King himself has stated that Misery is
1: one of his top ten favorite film adaptations in his 2009 collection Stephen King Goes to the Movies. In his 2000 memoir called On Writing, A Memoir of the craft. King references the movie adaption of the book saying, quote, in the early 1980s, my wife and I went to London on a combined business pleasure trip. I fell asleep on the plane and had a dream about a popular writer. It may or may not have been me, but it sure to God wasn't James Caan. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm not really sure what that
2: meant. Well, either. <clears throat> Maybe he had a problem with
1: that. So I also uh, wanted to include some notable reviews from Letterboxd here. These are always fun. Yeah. So uh, just from top to bottom, first one. Uh, would watch a whole movie about Richard Farnsworth and Francis Sternham, a squabbling crime-solving couple. I oh,
2: yes. would too. Oh my god, I would love that. I would. Oh my god, that'd be one of my favorite things ever. I'm for sure for real.
1: Like they're they're like a really good B story in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like the cutaways like help with the the pacing and the tension of this movie, which is excellent. Yes, by the way. And so they just kind of keep revving the engine, right? They add oxygen to the story a little bit. And uh, it's it's great. I love them. They're so cute.
2: And they're, they're super cute. And it seems very natural,
1: right? It like, is. They yeah. seem like a very natural, great couple, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this next one. Can you imagine if Annie was a fan of a song on Ice and Fire, though?
2: <laughs> God, J.R.R. Martin. <laughs> no one would save him. <laughs> no. <laughs> no one would be looking for him. No. <laughs> I him. he's lost now. <laughs> Wait, where's Kathy Bates?
1: <laughs> All right, this next one. Felt cute, might break some ankles later. <laughs> uh, next one. Category 10 white woman moment.
2: Yes. <laughs> Category 10. Uh,
1: next one. Celebrity is a bitch and creativity is even worse. He may have gotten out of the cock car, but his soul is still trapped there, screaming. <laughs> and finally... This happened to my friend Eric once, except Eric was Denis
2: Villeneuve and Kathy Bates was me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm your number one fan. (laughs) It's called hobbling, Denis. (laughs) (laughs) I love Letterboxd. Really, it's one of the best things to happen to my cell phone in years. (laughs) Uh, It does have some accolades and legacy, for sure. Um, At the Academy Awards, Kathy Bates won Best Actress. Right.
1: So she became the first woman to win an Oscar for Best Actress in a Horror or a Thrill Film, the- theoretically. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the first performer to win an Oscar for a, a horror film was actually Frederick March. I think we've gone over this before. Uh, first performance as the title character in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1931. The only other winners for acting in a horror film were Ruth Gordon for her performance as Mio- Mira Farrow's New Neighbor yep. with a Hidden Agenda in Rosemary's Baby. And I think that's the episode where we discussed this mm-hmm. from 1968. And, uh, and of course, she won for Best Actress in a Supporting Role. And then later, Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster for Best Actor and Best Actress in The Silence of the from 1991, a year after this, right? And then later, Natalie Portman for Best Actress in Black Swan from 2010. Although there's numerous, you know, accounts of the nominations happening, like Sigourney Weaver and for Aliens in 1986 that she did not win. <laughs> yeah. You know, but th- this is like few and far between. So it's just a very rare – we want to kind of – lean into the fact that this
2: is a very rare award for a horror film. And I feel like Daniel Kaluuya was nominated for get out maybe for best actor. Maybe perhaps. Yeah. But I mean, it's also rare for movies to be nominated for best picture. This was not, you know, but if you look at other Stephen King works, a lot of them have been nominated for things like Carrie was nominated for best actress, you know, and best supporting actress. And, uh, The Shawshank Redemption, while not exactly horror, but certainly Stephen King, was nominated for a slew of things and won nothing. Yeah. So, stupid Forrest Gump. Well, she actually also won a Golden Globe. And the DFW Critics Association (laughs) awarded her Best Actress. I have to include it every time I see it in the list. (laughs) And at the Saturn Awards, it didn't win
1: anything as far as I know, but it was nominated for Best Horror Film, Lost to Silence of the Lambs. Best Actor, Lost to Anthony Hopkins. Best Actress, Lost to Lyndall Hamilton. Mm-hmm. What was she in? In nineteen was that Terminator, Terminator 2? Two, and Best Supporting Actress for Mercedes Rule, um, and then Best
2: Writing Lost the Silence of the Lambs. What was Mercedes Rule in? The Fisher King, okay. But clearly, it, so that was Francis Sternhagen who was nominated for that award. Oh, and okay. I having seen both movies, I haven't seen The Fisher King since it came out, but yeah. we need some justice for Francis Sternhagen for sure. Yeah. Um, In 2003, Annie Wilkes was ranked number 17 on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains list. The hobbling scene in the film, in which Annie breaks Paul's ankles with a sledgehammer, was ranked number 12 on Bravo's 2004 program, The 100 Scariest Movie Moments. In 2015,
1: a play written by Goldman opened on Broadway with Laurie Metcalf as Ann Wilkes and Bruce Willis as Paul Shelton. I wanted to see this so
2: badly when it was on Broadway. I can't even imagine Laurie Metcalf <laughs> as that. Like, that would be so good for her. Yes. Such a good, good role. I, can all, I mean, like, for true. And, <laughs> like, it played Broadway for quite some time. And, like, every fiber of my being was like, how can I make this work? I want to go see this. Yeah. And recently... Uh, Granbury, Texas, right. Which Chris and I are aware of its location just South of Fort Worth was staging a community theater production of it. And I was just like, well, maybe I'll make the trek out there, but I don't know. Sometimes I'm scared to go to places like Granbury, Texas. Yeah. So let's talk about our cast a little bit. I think we have to, because I mean, this movie has a pretty limited cast and I feel like by and largely almost all of them are really good. If not just excellent in this movie
1: yeah and james Khan i think before this was mostly of course and still famous for godfather yeah you know as the eldest brother right you know other than that i'm not sure i know him for much
2: i mean i know that he's been in a lot of things yeah, and sure. like he had a very popular career he's right an elf i believe i think so you know he was in like rollerball and things like that you know but like His name is just never, it just never jumps out to me when I think of like famous actors, even though I know who he is. I confuse him with Ed Harris a lot. Yeah, I can see that. Later on. uh, Younger, they look nothing alike. No, but I don't know. I mean, I just, if James Caan was in a lot of movies, they, they just don't like jump out into my brain. You know, it really is the godfather in misery that I think of the most when I think of him. Right, And of course,
1: you know, he did a great job yeah serviceable although i think you were saying offline that you could have seen a different actor in this role
2: yeah so i mean for the like i've seen this movie a handful of times probably like 5 or so and um before this rewatch for the podcast i had watched it maybe about like 5 or 6 years ago right around the time that we were starting to talk about the film flamers and what it would be and i was just like oh let me just watch this movie because i just wanted to do it and this is the first time ever that i've seen this movie that i thought that that i was just like okay Yes, he's good in this, you know. But I feel like almost any other actor would also have been as good. I don't. I'm not sure that he brought something very specific to the role as an actor. And I think that's important, right? And I think that like
1: to be a, such a reactionary character, like mm-hmm. not really bringing anything, like allows the focus to be put onto Kathy Bates and her character. Which, if it's not going to be someone that's well known or a household name, which she absolutely was not, no, at the time she was completely unknown. I, I'm not even sure. I'm, I'm. I don't know if this was her first film, but she was a Broadway actress, exactly. Right, and so with James Caan, I think like this movie is a really good example of like a symphony of like pitch perfect choices with cast and pacing and editing and etc. And if this had been like
2: Harrison Ford. A lot of focus would have been pulled from Annie Wilkes' character. I guess that's true, and I didn't really stop and think about that, right? I mean, like James Caan was probably well well known enough to like maybe fill some seats, right? Yeah, as sort of a headliner to the movie, even though like his character by the end of it is not the main focus of the film, right? And, and it that's didn't, good,
1: though, like because it was a sleeper hit, right? It was yeah. it was like okay, well, this is Kathy Bates and this is James Condon. I think the real uh, seller here was probably Stephen King's name.
2: And that's true. And I feel like as far as, I mean, Stephen King's novels, he just releases something and it goes onto bestseller list, like just automatically people buy his work based on name alone, you know, like yeah. hardly anybody these days is like going to discover Stephen King based on his new work, you know, but back in the time, the eighties when misery was released as a novel, like, People bought it, obviously, and read it, but I never hear it talked about in like Stephen King circles as some of his best work. But I remember that novel being really, really good and very, very scary. Yeah. So you're right. I feel like Stephen King was probably the drawing factor to this, you know. And Rob Reiner.
1: Yeah, he was hitting, you know, head after head after head. I think this might have been his fourth movie. Yeah. We'll talk about him a little bit later. But yeah, this launched the career of Kathy Bates. She won her Oscar for basically her first major film.
2: And she's fucking excellent in this movie. Yeah. Like, I mean, no matter how many times you watch this, and I'm sure that we'll get into like sort of reactions to it on secondary watches. But like, it's still frightening to watch her just like be so sort of like bipolar in her performance.
1: Right. It was so easy to suspend my imagination with her. She was I never really caught
2: her acting. You know what I mean? Right. She was Annie Wilkes. That's true. And I feel that's true of a lot of things. Like we just talked about like the natural performance of Farnworth and Sternhagen, right? I feel like Kathy Bates was equally effortless in this. Well, there was a lot of – I was noticing there's a lot
1: of hard line deliveries, hard to sell, Mm -hmm. right? You know, oh, Paul constantly and just like stuff like that. Just like G. Willikers type of lines that are so ridiculous. But she sells them and they're hard to do because they're not big, you know, obvious monologues a lot of the time. A lot of them are just like little one-liners that she just has to really – believe in order you know to sell this character and she she does such a good job
2: you're right and she really does have to believe in her character alone just to have those like turns of emotion as quickly as she does right yeah because she literally goes from like fine to like screaming at him and and you're like you're absolutely right too like some of the lines that she has to deliver are so weirdly and comedically written but i'm not laughing at it you know, like one of the persons said it was a really funny performance as her. And I was like, yeah, I guess when you hear words like cock a you would laugh. Dirty bird and all that stuff. But right. she's playing it as serious as a car accident. Exactly. Which is a and, very wise choice. And it's frightening to watch, you know? Like, I would be less scared if my captor was actually using the word fuck, you know? Yeah. Instead of saying effin'. Like that whole scene where she's talking about the profanity in his oh, new book.
1: Oh, yeah. I wrote that, and, that quote for later.
2: Yeah, because she was like, that effin' pig feed. And here's one bitchly check or whatever (laughs) it's like clear that she doesn't curse you know what i mean she doesn't know how to but like that to me is frightening if someone came in and actually said fuck to me i'd be like okay but it's the ones who refuse to cuss i'm like i'm terrified of you get away from me right now so but she's really really good in this movie and i don't i feel like at the time like if you watch her acceptance speech for this you know I think she looks like she's genuinely surprised to have won that award. Oh, yeah. And completely appreciative, Uh you know? Sometimes people get up there and just like everything is contrived in their speech because they know they're going to win, right? I feel like this was a surprise for her. And when it comes to like performances on film, I feel like well-deserved. Like for once, the Academy will get something right.
1: Sure. And be able to overlook genre. Well, she was also kind of hand-picked. So I want to give some credit to the casting agent. Here. Yeah, for sure, you know. But uh, we also have Richard Farnsworth and Francis Stern Hagen as Sheriff Buster and his wife Deputy Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> they really fucking stole the movie from me on this watch. A little bit, like I've never really noticed them as much before. In fact, I think I'd completely forgotten about them. For and sure. And this watch I'm like I could have like a whole fucking movie or it's like a series about them just like as the wraparound on different like Stephen King stories or something.
2: I wish that Stephen King would go back and do that. He's doing that a lot more in his career now. He created a character named Holly who was in, like, a series of books he wrote, Mr. Mercedes and so on and so forth, like yeah. crime novels. And then she came back in a more horror novel called The Outsider. And she was, like, my favorite part of that book. And now he's released an entire novel just about that character. Yeah. So I'm like, you should really go back into your career and, like, pick up some of these side characters and flesh them out just a little bit more. Well, it was fun to see him bounce off of other characters, including
1: just even on the phone with Lauren fucking Bacall. Yeah. You know, who just seems a little exasperated, but then she's like kind of apologetic. And Lauren Bacall, of course, is pitch perfect. She always is, but she's
2: randomly in this fucking
1: movie.
2: It was so random. I totally forgot that she was in this. And so when I saw her name in the credits, I was like, oh yeah, I forgot she was in this movie. Yeah,
1: Yeah, she she completely represents the golden age of Hollywood. For sure. She's like the bridge between like the new and old, the Catherine Hepburns, you know, and then Mm -hmm. like the newer folk, you know.
2: And she just looked outstanding. She looked like the golden age of Hollywood, like standing there on the phone. You know, she has like a couple moments in this movie, like three scenes, right? But I was like, Lauren Bacall is just amazing and just always pitch perfect. So there's a moment when Richard Farnsworth is on the phone with Lauren Bacall's character. And he has a rubber band around his fingers and he's just sort of fidgeting with it. Right. And like his fingers are constantly doing the same thing over and over again. He doesn't miss a beat, delivers every single line. And it like, again, just looks so incredibly natural, you know, like watching this is like watching actual people. You know what I mean? And I feel that that's, an astounding feat for actors to be able to do. Oh yeah. Very naturalistic, but also kind of character actors. Yeah. And, and I'm sure that people like Frances Sternhagen and Richard Farnsworth and Lauren Bacall are used to these sort of things. And Kathy Bates for sure has gone on to become a really good character actress. Like she's different in just about every movie that she's in, but she also has this sort of like, Comfort in her performances. Like you know, if you're gonna see a Kathy Bates movie or a movie with her in it, like she's gonna be good. Yeah. I feel like she was some of the best parts of some of these not so successful American horror story seasons. She was always the
1: best parts. Yeah. Like yeah. ever
2: since uh Coven. She was great in Coven. I thought she was really good in like Roanoke, which was yeah. just a hit or miss season, you know? Yep.
1: She was amazing in both of those.
2: So I mean I, I feel
1: she like she plays like a satanic robot. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the shit that he gets her to do.
2: <laughs> I mean, she's just, she's a good character actress. And I, I feel like this is a good start for her. And she went on to do some really amazing things. Yeah. So. Well,
1: uh, as a background producer, Andrew Scheinman read Stephen King's novel Misery on an airplane and later recommended it to his director partner at the time at Castle Rocket Entertainment, who was, of course, none other than Rob Reiner. And Reiner eventually invited writer William Goldman to write the film's screenplay. I didn't do much research on that because I wanted to really kind of double up on Rob Reiner and uh, later the cinematographer of this movie as well, Yep, who we've actually covered before. So Rob Reiner had already directed Stand By Me you know, which was released in 1987, which, of course, Stephen King loved and considered it to be the first real successful adaption of his work, which I'm surprised to hear. I thought
2: he would have liked Carrie. Um, I know he didn't like The Shining. He didn't like The Shining. At the time, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't want to put words into Stephen King's mouth because I don't really know the details for sure. But I think that he was just appreciative for his work to have been um, adapted in the first place, maybe, because mm-hmm. he was kind of a newer author. Like, by the time that he had put out Misery as a book, he had been writing, like, as his career, right, for maybe like 10 years, yeah. a little bit more than that. So, He was pumping out novel after novel and things like that. But I don't know. I I do know that he really, really liked Stand By Me. But I also feel like when he writes things like The Body, it's a little bit more autobiographical. And maybe that's why he liked it as much. Oh, well, for sure. Rob Reiner,
1: though, started as a writer for the Smothers Brothers. Oh, my God. One of which just died a few days ago, by the way. Really? Really? Yeah. Um, so in the late 60s for their TV show, he went on to write uh, for the Partridge family, All in the Family, which he also famously starred in as Archie Bunker's liberal son-in-law. Meathead. And uh, Happy Days. Oh, I didn't and, know And uh, yeah, so he, he a lot of these times he would write in these and then he would also star in them. Sometimes as the guest star that he would write. So he'd like almost write for himself okay. as well. So it'd be kind of interesting. His first feature uh, was This is Spinal Tap. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, The Sure Thing, which I have
2: not heard of. Uh, that's got, what's his name? John second in it. Oh, okay. It. And then his third feature was Stand By Me. And that's an excellent movie. You know, like if, I feel like if it's not already on the Stephen King polls that we've put on Patreon, it certainly needs to be, right? Because it's a good companion to this for sure. Yeah.
1: And it was at least on one of our top 10 adaptions.
2: Yes. Like I, it's, it's an
1: excellent, excellent film. So. But I mean, for those, like, for just like he is super eclectic. Mm-hmm. Like I've almost never heard of a, a more eclectic director than Rob Reiner, just looking at Spinal Tap, sure thing, and then Stand By Me. And then he went on to do The Princess Bride. It's true. And then When Harry Met Sally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All those are very, very different movies. Uh, I think You could say there's a string of romance or some of them, but also like, you know, weird periodic comedy and like other things. And then uh,
2: he did Misery. I feel like, just based on this list, you know, and not the things that maybe came after Misery, but, like, he does projects that he wants to do as a director. He's not going to do just anything.
1: I guess. Like, back then, like, he could have probably taken his pick. Spinal Tap, Sure thanks. Stand By Me, Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, and then Misery. Mm-hmm. After that, he did A Few Good Men. One of the best legal dramas <laughs>
2: I didn't realize he directed that movie.
1: And then his career went south after he did North. <laughs> <laughs> Elijah Wood. Yeah. Yeah. Because I remember seeing all these. That's the one I think I saw in the theater. And I was like, this is trash. Oh, my God. And they did that Annette Bening, Michael Douglas thing with the the American President, which was okay. Yeah, this is a fine movie. It's and fun. then Ghosts of Mississippi, The Bucket List, and, and like a bunch of others, mm-hmm. um, but just nothing super notable uh, except for maybe LBJ recently in the last couple of years. I haven't seen that. But I haven't seen The Bucket List. Ghosts yeah. of Mississippi is a good movie. Yeah. But I mean, really, it's like that late 80s, early 90s, like string of movies that he did.
2: And Castle Rock Entertainment, his production company was no slouch, you know, like I feel like anybody of a certain age who was watching movies in the theater back in the 90s knew what that little promo cut looked like at the start of movies. Right. With the lighthouse and all that stuff. And like it would go on to produce many other Stephen King adaptations as well. Like he had his hand in a lot. So, And I, I really like it when very specific directors, producers, writers all make multiple Stephen King adaptations, right? Because you know that they like the source material. Rob Reiner's done two. Right. Flanagan's done several, you know. What's his name who did The Shawshank Redemption? And The Green Mile. Darebaugh. yeah. And The Mist. And The Mist, right? So, I mean, like these people go back back to Stephen King work because they like it.
1: Right. Well, they
2: get good results from them and they do. And they are the best adaptations the ones who like really care about the source material, who go back time and time again for inspiration from him as a writer. Right. Brian Singer. He never went back. (laughs) No. (laughs) Good riddance. Exactly. Right. But Rob Ron is also
1: really, really famous for being like an outspoken liberal in Hollywood. So much to the point where he's been like parodied across the board. Yeah. You know, in different movies or TV shows or skits, you know, and things like that. Um,
2: I don't really remember what for. I mean, his character on All in the Family is certainly outspoken. Yeah. And it's fun to see was. the okay. dynamic between him and his father-in-law that was the basis of that show, essentially. Yeah. Right? Bridging old and new. And I feel like that character is not really a stretch from who he was during that time period or even still today. Yeah. Right? So.
1: Yeah. So as far as casting is concerned... The part of Paul Sheldon was actually originally offered to William Hurt twice. Wow. And then Kevin Kline, Michael Douglas, Harrison Ford, (sniffs) Dustin Hoffman, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Richard Dreyfus, Gene Hackman, Robert Redford. And they all turned it down. Warren Beatty was interested in the role, wanting to turn him into like a less passive character, but eventually had to drop out because of post-production for Dick Tracy was extended. So eventually, someone suggested James Kahn, who had agreed to play the part. And of course, Kahn commented that he was attracted by how Sheldon was a role unlike any of his others, and that being a totally reactionary character
2: is uh, really a lot tougher. He's certainly not reactionary in The Godfather, right? He's hot headed. Yeah. Also, yeah. theoretically, uh, Jack
1: Nicholson was offered, heavily offered the role. Oh, that would have been... That yeah. would have... Well, he would have done... He, all these actors would have done an amazing job, right? But it would have pulled focus.
2: Yeah, and it, the movie would have been out of balance, in my opinion. I don't, I mean, out of the list that you just said, I mean, like, there's some that I could definitely see and some not. I feel like Richard Dreyfuss would have been a quiet performance. I
1: think William Hurt would have been
2: good. William Hurt would have been a really quiet performance, too. Kevin Kline, I think, would have been excellent. Maybe, yeah. You know, but it seems like they just literally offered it to anybody. With De Niro and Al Pacino, just to stop it. Yeah, no, that's just like, no, no. no Harrison
1: Ford I just
2: his just presence his
1: face would have just drawn.
2: Yeah, I don't. Away. Yeah. I mean like ultimately I feel like James Conn was the right choice to go even though he seems to have been like their last choice. Yeah. And honestly like over time, the more you see someone play a role, it's sometimes hard to say, like, I can't picture anybody else doing it. I certainly feel that way about Kathy Bates, although if somebody tells me you're probably going to tell me some other people who are up for that role, too. But I don't know. In this particular watch, I was just like, I'd kind of be interested to see someone else do it. But based on that list, I don't know. James Conn was probably the best. Mayhaps, at so, least in hindsight.
1: Yeah. Uh, so far as Annie Wilkes, Angelica Houston and Bette Midler were not only up for, but they were both offered the role of Annie Wilkes. Oh. But both of them turned it down.
2: Okay, Bette Midler, you mentioned off mic, right? So, yeah, I can I can see that now in my head. It took me some convincing, but you're correct. Angelica Houston, I cannot. Uh,
1: she can be, you know, I saw some of the other roles that she was playing around that time. Lonesome Dove and some other things, you know, and she can be a lot of different things. Angelica Houston's a great actress,
2: yeah. She's just Morticia at
1: the time, obviously.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, she's good in things like Pritzi's Honor and stuff like that, you know. But like, I don't know, I just, I almost wonder if she was up for it because of Barry Slotenfeld. But interesting, Hmm. I. This is just one of those things like I, I cannot picture anybody but Kathy Bates doing this, except for maybe Laurie Metcalf on stage. But then Bette Midler as well. So we'll talk about that in a little bit as well. But
1: yeah, uh, both of them were offered and both of them turned it down. Midler would later say that she deeply regretted the decision. According to Reiner, it was Goldman who suggested Kathy Bates, then unknown uh, that should portray any Wilkes. But yeah, it was originally too violent. Midler, Bette Midler decided it was too violent and later she was kicking herself. Because she could have won an Oscar for that if she had done it well enough. She could have,
2: you know. It but would have been
1: really easy for Bette Midler to go over the top on that, though, I think.
2: I think so, and in a performance space, in a written way, right? But, like, it's hard for me in my brain to picture Bette Midler holding up a sledgehammer and bringing it down to someone's ankle. Oh, I could see that in a second. Really? Have yeah. Have you not seen First Wives Club? I think. <laughs> <laughs> or Hocus Pocus? But again, all those, like, those roles, she's like verbally catty. You know what I mean? I have no, I have no doubt that she could like deliver the lines and things in this movie, but in a physical sense, I'm not sure I can see Bette Midler doing that. Yeah. But, and if I did, maybe it would have been like twice as shocking, but it was shocking enough already. So I do want to talk about Barry Sonnenfeld, who was the cinematographer yep. of this
1: movie. Right. Um, He began as we've talked about him before. Uh-huh. Uh So he, he began his career in pornos <laughs> <laughs> and then he became a cinematographer for things like Raising Arizona, Big, When Harry Met Sally, and Misery. Uh those some of those movies sound familiar because of course Rob Reiner directed a couple of those, right? Yep. Uh then he became a director. So in the early 90s, right? So he became a uh, director for the Addams Family and Adams Family Values. So that's where, you know, she comes in as far as uh, Angelica Houston. She played Morticia. And then he did uh, he directed Get Shorty in Wild Wild West. <laughs> And uh, Men in Black, 1, 2, and 3. And the movie RV,
2: which is excellent. Don't sleep on that. Are you being serious right now? I'm being serious. With Robert, no, Robin Williams? Is yes. It? It's great. I've never seen this it's movie. It's fucking hilarious. I've already written it off. Now I feel like I shouldn't have. <laughs> you shouldn't have. It's great. <laughs> okay. You learn new things. Yeah. Oh, after all these years of friendship, Chris, I am learning <laughs> new things about you constantly. <laughs> I was sleeping on it. My parents showed it to me and it was fucking great. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm so intrigued. It's hilarious. Uh, Barry Zonnefeld as a director, I think is excellent. Obviously Adam's family and Adam's family values are something that you and I both love and we've talked about on the podcast, right? Get shorty. I think is an amazing movie. Um, it's when he starts to work with Will Smith that I'm like, Meh, well, well West that's okay. It's fine. Men in black. I was never the biggest fan of, I like the first one.
1: Um, and wild wild west was famously taken over from, um, Kevin Smith. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause he was actually going to do a Superman movie. And then this producer got involved and was like, well, we're going to make it into this giant fucking spider. And Superman has to fight the spider and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Right. And so they actually turned it and he was like, fuck no, this is not my movie anymore. I'm not going to do this. Stu- this is stupid Hollywood bullshit, you know, with producers just lording over everything. And so
2: that got turned into wild wild. West. <laughs> And then came in Barry Sonnenfeld.
1: And came in Barry Sonnenfeld to, to helmet, I guess, you know.
2: And the lyric from the theme song, theme song to that movie is one of the best things ever said by Will Smith out loud. You don't want to see my hand where my hip be at? Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, and then if you watch the latest Flash
1: movie, there's a tongue-in-cheek moment where there's like an alternate universe where Superman's played by Nicolas Cage. Because Nicolas Cage was going to play Superman and he's fighting a giant spider a monster or whatever. Jesus. And it's like, a, yeah, it's just a quick thing of like what the movie could have been. Cause that was a whole thing. Anyway, fun. Who times. directed that? What? Who directed that? The movie? flash movie. Yeah. I don't know. Right. Some, some bloke. <laughs> some bloke, Someone, some dude. So, uh, the film score was composed by Mark Shaman, who's serviceable here. And apparently he's done a shit ton like beaches. Oh, there you go. When Harry met Sally city slickers, the Adams Family, Sister Act, A Few Good Men, Hocus Pocus, First Wives Club. There you go. In and Out, Simon Birch, Patch Adams, The South Park Movie. What? Team America. <laughs> <laughs> LBJ and interestingly, a bunch of Academy Awards in the 90s. He won Academy Awards? No. He was the composer of the all the music during the awards. And he oh. Was the, uh, he was the actual conductor and stuff.
2: I feel like out of this list, he had to have been nominated sometimes, though. I don't know why I've never heard this man's name. I don't know. Well, I may have heard it but it's not like fresh in my brain. I can't think of any one of these themes except for
1: uh beaches maybe and, and even then it's not the score and um Adam's family. Yeah, you know.
2: Well, and the South Park movie was nominated for best song, so Yeah. Mhm. I and mean, I wonder
1: amazing. if he did if he composed the music for a lot of these songs like for Team America and stuff that would be hilarious. I mean, I should hope so. But he's still making movies, so hey,
2: that's good. Yeah. What'd you think about the movie in this? Or the music in this movie?
1: I thought it was serviceable. I, I didn't. There's no, you know, light motif. You know, I think that's what he's really good at is he scores for moments. Yeah. More than he is, like he's not one of those uh, guys where you're coming out whistling the theme song, like John Williams or James Horner or Jerry Goldsmith.
2: That's true. It just really fits. Like there are some moments in this, like when he's racing to get back to his room. Right. Yeah. After getting out for the first time or whatever, you know, like that, I feel like that's a good music moment by and largely the, the moments that I remember from this movie musically is fucking like Liberace. Yeah. And
1: yeah. then there's like the, the fight scene at the end moment where just yeah. like, the drums go and I'm like, mm, that's a little over the top, but yeah. you know, for a 1990 audience, that would have been a lot more harrowing than it is maybe today. But still, this movie has aged very well, very well, as far as tone is concerned, in my opinion. Oh, for sure. Like, I feel like this is a rewatchable movie. Like, Matt was wincing, I could tell, during mm-hmm. the, the hobbling. That's the big scene, of course, is the yeah. hobbling. There's several times you know, in this movie that I wince, right? Yeah. Do you want to talk about some of our favorite moments, though? Yeah, and you could almost just walk your way through this movie with quotes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so that's what I've done. <laughs> good. <laughs> so, of course, there's Annie's intro, right? I'm your number one fan. There's nothing to worry about. You're going to be just fine. I'll take good care of you. I'm your number one fan. Right. This has been period. That's her lot. intro.
2: Have you seen, I know you're not, you don't really watch Family Guy, right? No, But barely. Family Guy had an episode where they're doing like these little Stephen King vignettes with different characters playing it. Uh-huh. And so when they did Misery, it was Brian the dog and then Stewie, the baby, was playing Annie Wilkes. <laughs> Of course it was. So when Brian's waking up, it's Dewey going, I'm your number one fan. I'm your number one fan. And he's got like this Kathy Bates wig on and this like little jumper. <laughs> it's just fucking amazing. It makes me laugh thinking about it. God.
1: <laughs> right. Well, this is the intro. And of course, when you first watch this movie, you're not quite sure what to think of it. You know, maybe Kathy Bates is the, the villain or something. Then we get, you know, the psycho reveal. Right. And there's several quotes that I, I – uh, put to this right and uh there's one I thought you were good Paul but you're not good you're just another Lionel dirty birdie <laughs> <laughs> like I said she says these is like a, as like serious as a car accident
2: and they just come out of nowhere sometimes right like the next right. one
1: I know that Mr. Man they also call them cereals I'm not stupid you know and I keep giving her like this Minnesota accent or something but
2: <laughs> it's called <laughs> hobbly Paul don't you know <laughs> <laughs> don't you know I'm just gonna take this little time here. <laughs> 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 and
1: then uh talking about cursing, he says, like, everybody in the slums curses. And I think she took it as, like, everybody curses. She's like, they do not. What do you think I say when I go to the, the feed store in town? Oh, now, Wally, give me that bag of effing pig feed and tennis of the bitchly cow corn. In <laughs> the bank, do I tell Miss Bollinger, oh, here's one big bastard of a check. Give me some of your Christing money. There, look, see now what you made me do.
2: <laughs> she spilled soup on him, yes. right? That's okay. So, like, some of Jane's, James James Con's best reactionary moments are in these particular lines, right? Because or which is like accidentally or at first you think she might be accidentally spilling kerosene on him or whatever. Right. And then
1: later you see that she's doing it on purpose because
2: he slowly realizes what's happening. Yeah. Right. And at first, like, it's sort of a callback to when she's holding his like urine. Right. And she's yes. shaking it. And he's yeah. like, oh, my God, she's going to spill that shit. Yeah. And the same thing with the soup. I mean, she's holding the soup and she's so careful when she's feeding it to him. Yeah. And then when she just loses her shit, you know, like. She just starts to fling things around. She has no idea that she's done it. Like, and she even says that her temper, like, gets the best of her, whatever. And it's almost like you don't, you
1: wonder, like, she just did it so naturalistically when she throws the kerosene mm-hmm. on there. because She's gesturing with it. And he's like, uh, what just happened? And then it's almost like you wonder if she'd planned to do it or if she gets the idea while she's of, doing it. Of doing it while well, she did it. No, you know? I, I and then she continues to do it mm-hmm. after either getting the idea or having the plan already. But it's just done so well. And like you're like you, what you said, these scenes echo each other. They do.
2: And it gets worse and worse and worse. Yeah. And I the kerosene moment alone, the lighter fluid scene, right? Because he's scalling. He doesn't want to burn his manuscript. And she knows this. And she's like, okay. Well, then you're going to get a threat, you know? And so she's like, all right, well, if you don't want to burn your manuscript, I'm just going to burn you. And like, it takes him a minute to realize what she's doing. But I think that she fully knows. She's like, oh, no, no, you're going to do this. This I'm on a mission from God. That's right. And like, it is just fucking terrifying. Yeah,
1: it is. And she's she's this is a life or death moment. And then, of course, he does it and it goes into flames and she's, she's, oh, <laughs> oh
2: heavens to Betsy. Oh, heavens to Betsy. Heavens oh, to, oh my go- goodness. Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, it's so back and forth. It's, I love it's,
1: it. It's, yeah. And that's, it's a really like tight wire act to try and
2: keep her kind of endearing the entire movie. That's right. Well, I mean, and it's, it's an act for him too. Like he's trying to keep her like just sane enough so he can live, you know? You know, yeah, slowly and slowly he's starting to like fucking learn more about her. And like he should be like scared shitless. He starts to
1: he starts to match energy. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Whenever she's being manic, he starts being manic, too. Whenever she starts getting romantic, he starts getting romantic, too. And at the end, when she's reverent with the whole like murder, suicide piece, he starts getting reverent as well. You know, he starts matching energy and like it really, really works for him. Right, and so it's like everything starts to make sense narratively within this world, right? And that's kind of rare these days in movies. It's like, it's like oh, I would have done this, or that would have could have happened, or blah blah blah. But everything seems to kind of
2: fall into place and make sense psychologically as well. Yep, which is interesting. When I think that goes to show. I mean, like a source material has to be really good, yeah, right? And Misery is a very good book. Um, and B, you have to have some sort of reverence to that source material, right? The further you stray away from it. Then like the the worse your product might end up being yeah you know and so I feel like in order to create that kind of like perfect world which they've done in this movie all the pieces sort of have to fit together a little bit and they do in this
1: so I wanted to include a quote from Sheriff Buster even though it's kind of an aside um, when he's doing the investigation with his wife slash deputy and yeah he, and she's being you know her normal kind of caddy self or whatever and he Feisty. responds yeah. You see, it's just that kind of sarcasm that's given our marriage real spice.
2: And then he says it again later on. He's like, there's that spice spice again. again. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I... If anything, all I want in life is to like grow old with someone so I can have this kind of rapport. And banter, yeah. Yeah. The kind of rapport that takes like fifty years of like bickering with someone or whatever, you know? But still loving them. So <laughs> there's that spice again. <laughs>
1: that kind of sarcasm.
2: That's real marriage. Real spice. I think that my favorite moment is when she's driving the truck and he's in the passenger seat and she puts her hand on his leg and he's like, When you're driving this vehicle, you're my deputy first and my wife second. Or something like that i was like this couple
1: yeah fucking amazing i know and then she's just like well this deputy would rather be under the covers at home with her husband (laughs) i'd rather
2: be under the covers with you i was like i love it i love them (laughs) god
1: anyway and then the this here's the section i like to call it's called hobbling paul Uh even though that's not the quote and so i thought i would use this opportunity to put actual this is actually a monologue yep is where it comes and she says
0: i know you've been out twice paul first, I couldn't figure out how you did it. But last night, I found your key. I know I left my scrapbook out. I can imagine what you might be thinking of me. But you see, Paul, it's all okay. Last night, it came so clear. I realize you just need more time. Eventually, you'll come to accept the idea of being here. Paul, do you know about the early days of the Kimberly diamond mines? Do you know what they did to the native workers who stole diamonds? Don't worry, they didn't kill them. That would be like junking a Mercedes just because it had a broken spring. No, if they caught them, they had to make sure they could go on working. But they also had to make sure they could never run away. The operation was called hobbling. What do you think I'm not doing? It. Please don't do it. Any regards? Shh, darling. Trust me. For God's sake! It's for the best. Eddie, please! Almost done. Just one more. <laughs> God,
2: I love you. What's that called where everyone like sort of like has an it's, idea of Yeah, it's like yeah. the Luke I am your father
1: thing, but that's yeah. not. It's just a paraphrase that makes a quote quotable. Exactly. You know, it's called hobbling Paul, and I think that works cuz you can imagine her saying it completely.
2: It does, you know. But I mean, this moment obviously is like the most shocking thing in the movie, right? It's yeah. meant to be.
1: And is you have you- no idea what's happening and then you see that block
2: come. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. And like I had seen this movie before I read the book. Yeah. Right. Because I read this book later on into my like high school years or whatever. Um, And I didn't know that there was a difference in the novel. Like in the novel, she cuts off one of his feet. With an axe. With an axe. Yeah. And I'm not sure why they changed it in the movie. I think that it's for the better. Right. Because it's a little bit scarier this way. Well, I I think that they thought it would be too violent.
1: But also they changed it because they thought it would remove all endearment from her character.
2: Oh, maybe it made her a little less sympathetic.
1: Less sympathetic because it's straight up cutting off his feet versus something he can heal from, right? And so what they did was something that ended up kind of being magical, which is much more horrific and inventive, but still something that he could come back from. It's like the most horrific thing that she could do without permanently maiming him. Exactly. Theoretically. Right. And still might permanently maim Like but, but it's so much more horrifying because you can see the break. It's not
2: just some bloody stuff that we've seen a thousand times. And that's what I was going to say is that like by this point, by 1990, we have seen in horror movies like items get amputated, you know, sure. and that's nothing new. What you don't see very often is something like, OK. Just this scene alone, when she hits his foot with the fucking sledgehammer, and you see his foot twist, right? It is the most gut wrenching, like Wincy yes. fucking moment. Yes. Um, the combination of her like picking up a sledgehammer—you literally only see one foot get hit, just the one. Yep. You know, but it's enough. It's stuck in your brain that they don't have to show the well, it's second great, one because it's
1: two. It's because yeah. it goes to his performance. Because you see her hit it and you hear him scream. Yep. And then it goes to his face. And you hear it happening, but you see him scream. You see So it gets, scream. To go, it gets to show both of their
2: performances, which and is great because there's two feet. Two right afterwards, she's like, my God, I love you or something like that. You know what I mean? God, I love you, Paul. Yeah, it's just yeah. fucking terrifying. And like something else that I caught myself, because earlier we talked about one of those critics saying that her performance was comedic, you know? And yeah, when I was younger watching this movie, you'd laugh at words like cock a mm-hmm. you know what I mean? But this time around... Because I had started this document before I watched the show, the movie, and I was thinking to myself, my God, like we're literally, for people who find this hilarious, like we're laughing at someone who really has some sort of mental disorder, yeah. you know? And like, she really is like, just, she's got some problems. Some sort of like personality disorder with yeah. like
1: Munchausen syndrome by proxy. And Clearly. All, all, all that stuff, yeah.
2: So, I mean, like, I don't know, just as an adult watching this, like it's a lot, it seems a lot more serious to me. Yeah. And sure. I feel like if I were in James Con's situation, like I would – being a little bit more sympathetic to people who have like mental disorders, I would be a little bit more scared.
1: Yeah. It doesn't really change anything though. You know, it's still – she's still a human being and it's still funny when she's like saying cockamamie car or whatever like, yeah. you know, on the road and stuff like that. <laughs> you know, so we eventually get to the point where he is being forced – To write the story, you know, and so she's excited because she's read the first, you know, little bit of it. And so she's going through the house going misery is alive. Misery is alive. (laughs) Oh, this whole house is going to be full of romance. Oh, I'm going to put on my Liberace records. I love that moment. (gasps) I'm going to put on my Liberace records. (laughs) She's <laughs> like a cartoon.
2: <laughs> well, and then we get that like amazing, like montage scene set to Liberace where he's writing. Yep. Lots of good moments outside the house. You know, it's a really good time passage montage. Yeah. And like, this is finally because she was like being a huge editor and critic of his work. She's like, no, this is terrible. Like, yep. do it again. I expect nothing less than your masterpiece. Exactly. Yeah. No pressure. Right. Yeah. But she was like, you can't do this. You can't do that. She was like, she. She had only read that book theoretically one time and she knew everything that happened. She was like, no, at the end of the book, this happened, blah, blah, blah. She had that whole like serials moment, you know? And I was just like, my God, this woman will never let him go. You can't cheat us. You have to actually start where you ended off. Yeah. And then later on, when she talks about when Buster comes to see her and she's talking about like it's my mission in life to rewrite or take yeah. up the work, or whatever. You could see with the plan. Yeah. All of a sudden you saw
1: yeah. it kind of come into fruition where she was just gonna like leech off of him and have him write the stories and she
2: was gonna publish. And she was gonna keep him forever yeah. in that house. She yeah. would never let him leave. No matter how many times she had to hobble him. Yeah. Ooh, it's fucking terrifying.
1: Yikes. So then we get to their candlelight dinner, which is probably one of my favorite scenes, if not my favorite scene in the whole movie, outside of the hobbling and all that other stuff. Because like I can't really remember any specific quotes, but there's just a lot of great dialogue in that scene with all the entendres and everything else going on with the word misery yep. and you know there's a lot of tension going on. He's trying to drug her in the wine, and then she like you know catches her sleeve against it and spills it while she's trying to like light a candle and like there's so much at stake. Everything is at stake. Like. For the movie in this moment like that's like the center of this movie is that candlelight dinner and everything kind of hinges on it and um you know i just think it's really really well done and that's when i think a lot of the people in this movie are most like leaned
2: forward in their seats you know just to see what happens in this moment because so many things have happened leading up to that candlelight dinner he's already been out of his room right he has enough yeah. of those pills that he doesn't have to like squander anymore he's got enough to do it he sets his own plans in motion and he knows exactly who he's dealing with like really yeah he's already been out you know but she doesn't really know it yet right and so like it's just a lot and like he's done so much work to to get there and then all of it falls apart the only quote i can remember from this is he's like hmm never really had meatloaf that tasted quite like this after the hobbling, like, he was just like, okay, gotta go, you know, like, whatever I can do. Yep. The fact that she, like, knew he had been out of his room because the penguin was facing the wrong way. Also, I have that penguin figurine. Because at that point, he's, like, exercising with the fucking typewriter. He's, like, finishing, and he's ready to, like, shove it in her face. Like, you're you're going to die, and I want you to realize why I'm doing it. And he takes everything away from her, too.
1: Yeah, I like that. There's a full reversal. Like, everything's kind of poetic and echoes, right? And so, like, um, you know, he takes his manuscript and he burns it, you know? And Mm -hmm. he says, I learned that from you or whatever. And he tells her what she's losing, too. He's like, all the answers you've been looking for, and he sets it on fire. Yep. He takes the time to monologue a little at her, which is great. He does. You know, because she's been doing that at him the entire movie, you know? And uh, finally... You know, she's like, I'm going to she finally actually does say like cocksucker. She's like, I'm going to kill you, cocksucker or whatever, Mm -hmm. after he lights it on fire. And they're rustling around on the floor. He goes, you want it? You want it? Eat it. Eat like a Chuck, you sick, twisted fuck.
2: <laughs> and the audience is like right there with him, you know. You, I mean, you are like, like you're cheering for this because and everyone he's shoving likes the ashes of the paper in her into mouth. her mouth. And I mean, everyone wants to see a villain get their comeuppance, you know. And she has just been fucking crazy, like all the way through it, and like yeah. damaging him and his body and his brain. And like, I think even by that point, he realized that he, he would never escape until she was dead. Well, she
1: also allowed the audience to make that okay, not with the hobbling that kind of eased us in, mm-hmm. but by killing the sheriff Death. The sheriff who came by. That's right. When so, the sheriff kills, I was like, oh, God damn it. You know, I forgot that, that he died. And I really love that character. And so it makes it okay for her to die at
2: that point. It does. I mean, although like we really didn't need her to kill the, the sheriff to do that, because we've seen that we've seen the scrapbook. We know what this woman has done in the past, right? And it's, I don't think that's something that we really touched on in this particular episode yet. Is that like Annie Wilkes is no stranger to murder. You know, she just does it in a quiet. Oh yeah. You also found out that she's killed all these babies. Yeah. She's killed babies. Possibly her husband. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's it's
1: already been okay. Right. But it's like the the things of the audience, of witnesses, because you know, that's all like, you know, conjecture or whatever. Yeah. But you know, I think it's, it's, it's a lot about balance, right? Like we were talking about, this as a symphony of well-balanced orchestrated moments and pacing and everything else. And it's also like, okay, she did the hobbling and then she kills the sheriff and then she tells him about the murder suicide plans everything's in place for us to like really throw our weight behind him getting out of the situation. Well,
2: because no matter what happens in the past or exposition, right. To get to know a character, it's really about the stakes that are created during the film. Right. Yeah. And so it's like,
1: it's not about hating her so much as him needing and being justified to get out of the situation. Mm. Not about like, her losing any kind of endearing quality from being like such an interesting character on screen. So it's just really, really interesting kind of pitch perfect manipulation
2: of a script to make this kind of happen for the audience in the way that is so satisfying. And with that being said, I know that Goldman wrote the the play and I am very, very interested to see how this is done on stage. yeah, Because there is no Deputy Virginia. There are three characters in the play. It is Paul, Annie, and the sheriff. Okay. And that's it. So I would love to see like how this works out and how they would do it. You know, I don't know. But yeah, that final battle scene though, like, okay. When he lifts up the typewriter and hits her over the head with it is one thing. (laughs) Yeah. But then at the end, when he pushes her and she falls on the typewriter is the one moment in this movie where I was sort of taken out of it because the effect, the dummy head that is made of her when it hits the typewriter is so not good (laughs) to me. And I know it's like really quick, but when her head hits the typewriter, it looks like they just dropped a dummy on top of it. And I was just like, oh, that's sad. Because everything else in this movie, as far as like body effects go, are really good. Yeah, The way that his legs look, that makeup, when he's laying in bed the whole time, is fucking gnarly. And the hobbling scene, super fucking gnarly. I was like, I kind of expected at least that part. Well, you're not going to get
1: Uncanny Valley from a fucking foot. You know what I mean? well, you're going to get it from someone's face. Yeah. Where, you know, our brains are are highly designed to be, you know, for facial facial recognition versus, like, a foot or NNM an object. You know, I'm those just, things are easy to fake, you know, versus, like, a face. So, at least it's, like, half a second. I noticed how kind of weird it looked. But then I just forgot about it because it, it's only on
2: screen for, like, a, a flash of a second. I know? don't know why. But I was, like, when I was watching it, I was just like, oh. <laughs> oh that looks bad <laughs> you know but she looks like a waxwork yeah yeah I think because it, it was like so centered on screen it was the entire thing and also yeah, it done like, on it like it could have
1: done a little further away or something
2: TVs but are better than they are how now. stiff the mannequin itself was yeah it was just like doink <laughs> I was just like oh and then I, I kind of forgot that she got up again and attacked him a second time so at, at least there was another moment where he could hit her head a little differently when he finally had the death blow given to her yeah. but like, I don't – her face was, like, super fucking bloody and shit when she came after him the second time after we thought she was dead.
1: Yeah, and I feel like the typewriter moment where she fell on the typewriter should have probably been the thing that killed her versus, like, the hitting her in the nose or whatever with the, the door. The
2: doorstop thing?
1: Yeah. 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 Or like the stairs were right there, if you like, like like punch her down the stairs or whatever, and have like a nice like neck break moment or something. But At I least, think they wanted to like really put it in his hands, and exactly. Give him the victory, you know. I mean, yeah, they
2: they really kind of had to. another balancing act moment, exactly, know? for him to be able to go on with his life. Like he needed to be sure. That she was dead, you know, and her hitting her head on the typewriter was not really in his hands, kind of. It was accidentally he pushed her and she hit the typewriter. You're right.
1: That would have been like a dissonant. And we keep talking about like this being like a symphony of, you know, like what was the right note for this moment? And that was. Right. And so it's just like, uh, you know, and you can think about a lot of the Rod Reiner films are kind of like that. If you think about, you know, Princess Bride. For sure. You know, a lot of things are really well orchestrated to be like a full circle story with everything kind of hitting the right notes to be really, really satisfying. When Harry Met Sally, you know, a lot of these.
2: Well, even though he, even though Paul delivered the final blow that kills Annie Wilkes, right? Like literally in her face with that doorstop. He is not over it and he never will be, right? There's definite PTSD going on with this because that waitress at the very end of the movie, he hallucinates as Annie Wilkes. You know, yeah. even though he knows that she's dead, he killed her himself, you know, Um, there's no question about whether the body's missing or not. Like she didn't get up and walk away. Like he's just forever traumatized and people are consistently and forever going to ask him about that moment. He will never be able to escape it. And that's probably the one thing that he wants to do the most. So,
1: and I really love that ending question too, because it answers it for the audience is like, Oh, this is probably going to be what he writes about or something. Or I wonder if he wrote a book about it or something. And he says, no, absolutely not.
2: Nope, I'm not doing that. I want to leave it alone, but no one will let him, not no. even his agent. Right, right. What, what? You have a special
1: mention quote. I do have a special mention quote, and it is, he didn't get out of the cock car. I don't even remember where that's from.
2: That's from the moment she's talking about the cereals, right? Oh. The TVs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it's the, the Rocketeer. He didn't Everybody get out of it. the cock car. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't buy that. I stood up and I shouted, no. Are you all suffering from amnesia? This is not what happened. They (laughs) cheated us. He didn't get out of the cock a car. (laughs) Masterful. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I've seen misery more times than I remember. (laughs)
1: This is probably at least my third time seeing it.
2: It's got to at least like five or six for me.
1: But yeah. Do you have some fun facts for me, though? I do. Okay. So this isn't really a fun fact about. This movie, but it might tell you something about why Stephen King was probably happy to give the rights to make a movie to Rob Reiner, you know, to the studio um, to make Misery, which is because he had to compose himself for 15 minutes after seeing Stand By Me because he was truly taken aback by how well Reiner had captured his work. One of the most
2: autobiographical of Stephen King's writings. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I kind of mentioned that earlier in the episode, right? Yep. So I mean, I feel like Stephen King will put a little bit of himself into a lot of his work, but there are some things that he's written that's so obviously about him or his childhood. And he has a yeah. very large fondness for things from that time period. Yeah, capture
1: it a little bit. Yeah,
2: yeah. And so, like, Stand by Me really does capture the essence of that short novel, right? I feel yeah. like Rob Reiner is some of the like the best when it comes to adapting Stephen King, because he is so faithful to the material. I love it. So James Kahn and Kathy Bates clashed over their acting methods. Kahn
1: believed in as little rehearsal as possible. Bates with her theater background was used to practicing a lot. When she commented to Rob Reiner that Kahn was not attempting to relate or listen to her, Reiner told her to use that frustration toward her character. It's called
2: hobbling James. (laughs) (laughs) That was actually James Conn's foot. <laughs> <laughs> it looks so good, we're going to keep it. <laughs> I can see that. I mean, like, Kathy Bates, to me, seems like a perfectionist. Like, sometimes you can see actors and actresses deliver their lines in such a way that you know that they've, like, poured themselves over it, right? Like, James Conn. We've already called his character reactionary, right? Or his performance reactionary in this. He seems that kind of way. He's like, Yeah, we'll just see what happens. Which is funny because Francis Ford Coppola,
1: of course, did Godfather, right? And he was famous from Godfather. And Francis Ford Coppola really he was an acting teacher before he was all this stuff. And so he likes to do all this prep work. You know, he had Anthony Hopkins, you know, doing like all this prep work for weeks in advance with, you know, and it's like Anthony Hopkins doesn't need that kind of you know, preparation or whatever. So it's like James Conn like, he should be at least used to it from at least one
2: other feature that he was famous in. Maybe that's why he decided not to do any rehearsal after that. (laughs) He's like, I had enough. Yeah, I read it. I'm fine. Can I do cart- like come up with something new line and then throw a ball at someone. Like, what yeah, no. can, you, can you imagine like Kathy Bates's exasperation, like being fully prepared for a scene and then James Conn going line <laughs> <laughs> like, <in> the background. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be holding that sledgehammer ever the whole time. Like, do you want to rehearse? <laughs>
1: <laughs> All he had to do was lay there like bib lettuce, <laughs> Conn. <laughs> anyway, speaking of which, James Conn had to stay in bed for 15 weeks of shooting. Khan said he thought that Rob Reiner was playing a sadistic joke on him, knowing the actor would not enjoy not moving around for so long. Khan was not used to playing a reactionary character and found it much tougher to play. Why would he think that he's getting a a sadistic joke played on him? Did he read the fucking script?
2: (laughs) For real, though. Or the book? Who knows? And also, like, I'm trying to think about his other roles. I mean, like, even in The Godfather, I don't think that he was moving around a shit ton. But not laying there.
1: Well maybe yeah. I mean fifteen weeks of shooting in bed is a little annoying. Um but you know it's like maybe it was maybe the point is that he didn't let him up like for breaks and stuff. Look like,
2: bring, <laughs> bring con his lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Kathy, spoon it. Here's your rehearsal time, Kathy. Use it wisely <laughs> oh My God. It's called cream of mushroom con. <laughs> <laughs> it's called tomato bisque con. <laughs>
1: Stephen King was quite impressed with Kathy Bates' performance in this film, so much so that he later wrote two more roles for her. The title role in his novel Dolores Claiborne was written with Bates in mind. And Bates later starred in the film adaptation of Dolores Claiborne, which we're going to cover next week, obviously. Yes, ma'am. King also wrote the script for the TV miniseries The Stand in 1994. His original novel featured a male character named Ray Flowers. Upon hearing that Bates wanted to be involved in the miniseries, King rewrote the part as a woman, Ray Flowers, uh, <laughs> with an E, just so Bates could play the part,
2: although it was uncredited. She's only in it for a second, too. Yeah. Oh, well. But she's good. Yeah. Again, I, I like it when people come back to Stephen King, and Kathy Bates is no exception. And we're going to get into Dolores Claiborne next week, so I'm not going to like blow my load early, but my goodness gracious, she's so good. And if if King is writing something from a novel perspective, thinking forward to a film adaptation, like that's good. And I'm glad that all this came to fruition because she's masterful in that movie. My first...
1: Um My first experience with her, I think, was I had seen her in other things, and I I think I'd recognized her,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: but I really, um, I think my first real experience with her was in Titanic from 1997. Really? Yeah. As the Unseekable Molly Brown.
2: So I had seen Misery, obviously, around the time that it came out. I don't think I saw it in the theater, but I at least watched it on video upon its release. And she also really struck me in Primary Colors. Did you ever see that movie? No. With John Travolta? hmm No. Uh, I think she's really good in that. Like, uh, by the time Titanic rolled around, like, I, I knew who Kathy Bates was, for sure.
1: I really didn't. Yeah. And so I watched that, and I just was like, who is that? She was awesome. She had a lot of great screen presence, you know? And she does, like, yeah. in everything that she's in. And she's kind of the audience in that movie a little bit, too, because by the end, mm-hmm. she's like, uh, why aren't we saving these people, you know? That's right. Anyway... She's pretty cool. And uh, uh, Misery, before it was turned into a Broadway play, was almost turned into a Broadway play. With Julia Roberts, says Annie Wilkes. What? Yeah. Stephen <laughs> King vetoed the idea because Annie is, in his words, a brawny woman who can sling a guy around, not a fucking pixie.
2: <laughs> Julia Roberts. Out of every actress that we have mentioned in this episode. Yeah. No. No. I put my foot down. Yeah. Julia Roberts. And he's right. Like, when she rescues him from the car, she's, like, holding her fucking, like, tire iron with James Caan over her shoulder yeah. and trudging through the snow. You can't I'm even tell it's like, a woman. Yeah. I know. <laughs> what the fuck? i <laughs> just like, I can't do that. Yeah. I don't like lifting up a case of water out of my trunk to carry inside, let alone a whole man.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> Julia Roberts. Give me a fucking Please. break. <laughs>
1: <laughs> During the course of the film, Annie says, oh, Paul, 12 times.
2: God. Oh, Paul. <laughs> I'm such a cock <laughs> Dirty bird. <laughs> Dirty bird. So, final one,
1: and I am proud to present our first, I think, our first fun fact that is actually from Film Flamers. Mm. In our Top 10 Stephen King Adaptions episode, Misery was number five on my list. Can you guess which number it was on yours? No. Oh, God. One? I don't know what your number one was, but you didn't put Misery on your top ten at all. Really? Really.
2: Oh, my God.
1: That is a glaring mistake. I know. It was number five on mine. And it, I need to go back and listen to that episode now because I went back and looked at our letterbox lists because we separated our lists. And uh, my God, Misery is nowhere to be seen.
2: Dolores Glaber's up there. I need to go look at that list now because was I just making my favorite Stephen King movies and not talking about their adaption (laughs) so much as like as compared to the book? I was like, these are my favorite Stephen King movies. I love Misery. Don't get me wrong. You put Stand By Me on there, but you you did not put Misery. That's weird. Yeah. I I was shocked. Shocked, I tell you. My God. Was I shocked? Were you shocked during the episode that it wasn't there? Yeah, because, well, I saw your
1: rating and I know that you love this
2: movie. I do. That's so weird. I need to go back and look at it. But it that wasn't list. on your top ten. And I saw a couple others
1: okay. that I thought maybe that you wouldn't have voted actually as, as highly rated, you know. But I think it's for you in your at the time when you were making that adaptions list, it was not based on rating. Probably not. But based on The cockles of your heart.
2: Probably. Yeah. The cockles of my of duty heart. Yes. For sure. I don't know. I'm super intrigued now. Thank you for that fun fact. I'm glad that we can finally have Film Flamers fun (laughs) facts in our episode. You're welcome. My gosh. All right. So we have some questions to ask about Misery like we do about every movie that we cover here on the Film Flamers. And we'll start with, is Misery a horror movie? Yes. It is. Not even like horror adjacent. I don't think that it's in your face with the horror. Really? But um, I think calling it just a psychological thriller is not doing it service. I feel like there are some really fucking scary moments in this movie. Oh, yeah. Which leads me to, were you scared
1: while watching this? Yeah, sure. There's the slasher moments in this. Yep. There's escape and slashery kind of like hide and seek moments a little bit. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of tension, you know, that ratchets up, you know, speaking of another nurse. And um, yeah, I I think there's definitely certainly moments of horror with – You know, the death of the detective uh, or sheriff, I guess I should say. And uh, of course, the hobbling, you know.
2: Yeah, the hobbling for her. I think for sure. I think that's the most like in your face, like horror moment of this movie. Right. But when when Sheriff Buster is shot like through the chest. Yeah. Like it just seems to come out of fucking nowhere. Right. And it's like at a moment where you're like, oh, my God, he's finally going to get saved. And there's just like this death. And she's standing behind him holding a gun. I was like, this is definitely a horror movie
1: for sure. Yeah, I think we both went, no, when that happened. And I feel like this would be a good, like, you know, show to watch with friends. Is it okay to kind of talk? Yeah. For sure. You know, during it a little bit, you know, and like you can really enjoy this with family and friends in a way that some other movies you can't, you know, as much, you know. And I feel like there's a lot of like hooting and hollering that can happen in this movie, too.
2: And I really enjoy movie watches like that. Yeah. Like some of my favorite times watching movies with you is when we're able to just sit there and sort of like comment on our own. Yeah. Guffaw. Guffaw. Guffaw with laughter. Uh, out of five stars, what did you rate, Misery? My score matches yours at 4.5. Yeah. Does that happen often? Not very often at all. Yeah. But it has happened. I think 4.5 is good. I think there was a time when I probably would have rated this movie five stars, right? It's glaring omission from a list excluded. I feel like this is a really, really good movie. I feel like it's rewatchable. And I feel like you will get different things from this movie on rewatches. Like, yes, you're not going to be as shocked at some moments. I think it's impossible to forget a hobbling scene, right? But knowing that it's coming gives you a little bit more ease in which to like watch the things that are happening, watch the performances a little bit more and really just get like the nuanced aspects of everything about this movie. I think it's incredibly well-made.
1: It is. And I, and I only gave it a, a, I only gave it a four and a half for one reason. It's because Rob Reiner um, watched all of Hitchcock's entire oeuvre to prepare for this and wanted to learn how to, to really film a thriller. And he was already a competent director. Right, of his own and and you know, had his own style and everything else, which he kind of abandoned a little bit from a technical filmmaking standpoint as where well is like where he was placing his camera. And there was a couple of times where he was, it was like kind of try hard Hitchcock, and some of those camera angles were a little jarring for scenes of just simple dialogue back and forth.
2: And I fucking hate that. Nope, I completely agree with you. I was trying to pinpoint why I didn't give it five stars on this, and my last rewatch before this was before the days of Letterbox, or at least before I was on Letterbox. Super subjective reason, but for me, like I now
1: know based on my research, like some of these angles are really bothering me, and it seems kind of. And then I read in my research today that it was because he was like looking at all this Hitchcock, and I'm like it all, you know, clicked into focus for me.
2: And Same. Now that you said this to me, because while I was watching it, I was just like, this doesn't feel like a Reiner movie, really. Like, watching Stand By Me and watching this are, like, very two different experiences. And that's fine, just based on plot alone, you know? But I feel like, at the time, I was watching this, and I couldn't quite pinpoint. I was like, I feel like Reiner is trying to be someone that he's not, technically. And it seems like a very Hitchcockian kind of movie. So that kind of makes sense. And it didn't need to be because he was a very competent director. And when
1: he kind of gets out of his own way is when it's it's working best. Exactly. You know? And so it's like when he's trying to do this kind of avant-garde, like camera placement, which is rare Mm -hmm. in the film, it's not always happening. It's just like during really random scenes, like he'd get all up into himself. And James Caan remembers that every time he'd get down on himself while making that movie, he was like, who do you think you are? Hitchcock. Yeah. So it kind of all comes into place, and this is a near perfect movie. And I feel like if he hadn't tried so hard to be Hitchcock, it would be five star.
2: It wasn't even about the camera angles for me, just like sort of like the beats of the movie itself seemed very Hitchcockian. In fact, when I was watching it, I thought to myself, God, if Hitchcock were alive by the time this novel was published, he would have given his left nut to make this movie. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You know, like he would have and he would have done a good job. But I mean there was just a little something that was keeping it from being five stars and it, it wasn't performances and it wasn't the movie itself. I think that like maybe just maybe parts of it just weren't as original as they could have been. It's called Hitchcock, Robert. <laughs> Clearly. Finally, who's the hottest guy in misery?
1: <laughs> I think it's got to be James Caan. <laughs> I guess, yeah. I don't
2: particularly sure. find him attractive. Not really. Whatever. He was in Godfather, for sure. Yeah, he was super attractive in Godfather. Yeah. So, but there's like slim pickings in this, for sure. It was like two men, really. Well, I guess the hotel front deskman. Front deskman? <laughs> yeah. That's about it. Although there were times watching this where I thought to myself, I would totally be Richard Farnsworth's partner. I would have been like, I don't care. It could have been some May, December romance and I'd be fine with it. I'm like, Oh, Richard, let's go solve crimes together. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that just about wraps up this Cocker Duty episode of misery. Um, As always, we would like to know some of your comments, you dirty birds. Find us over on social media at the Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or threads. You can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call our hotline at
1: 972 666
2: 7733. The operation is
1: called pegging, (laughs) Paul. Cock (laughs) Uh, catch us next week when we cover Dolores Claiborne and over on Patreon we are also going to be covering more Stephen King with another poll so whatever we have not covered already on Patreon or in deep dives you will have the chance to vote on that so become a patron and uh, get all of our episodes early and of course all of our hundreds of bonus bonus episodes at this point over at our patreon.com slash the film flamers also We're going to be coming out with our year review, Robert. That's right. So all of our top tens and uh,
2: favorites and least favorites of the year will be discussed in twos and threes of weeks. That's right. I am still trying to piece together my top ten for the year. I think I'm just about happy with it, but at least I know I have those twos and threes of weeks to get ready. Mm. Well, everybody, finally, one last thing. If you like our show head over to Apple Podcasts or iTunes where you can give us a five-star rating and a review. We can read that on Shooting the Flames or just anywhere you can leave us a note. Really, not four and a half, five. Five stars. <laughs> <laughs> Don't <Ryan arrest>. her us. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chris. I think it's time for uh, us to head off and strap myself down to a bed. Oh. So I can have some. Sweet Sweet. hobbles. Sweet hobbling. (laughs) You dirty bird.